so are there questions uh, or thoughts to to express following what we talked about before we took this break? Yes. Uh, as I'm uh, observing the breath, sometimes it seems to be so faint that it provides a lot of vacancy for me to have a uh, thought wondering. Uh, should I uh, take a deep breath or uh, should I uh, take some other measures to, to deal with this uh, vacancy? Uh, so you're saying that the breath becomes very faint, yeah. and as it becomes faint, uh, and there's gaps in your awareness, it's easier for the mind to wander during during those blank spaces. Yeah, uh, as much as possible, just try to fill those gaps with. Uh, seeking to discern whatever subtle sensations might be there on the one hand. So that is that's basically has the same effect as, as, as trying to notice the beginning and the, and the middle and the end of the in and out breath. It engages, it engages your attention more fully and so that should help to keep wandering from happening. When in the faint breath you have to uh, make a greater effort to continue to be aware uh, of the sensations or pick up the sensations after they become too faint to detect, that should help. Have you tried that? As you, you have tried that? Yeah. And, and did you find that it was helpful? Uh, yeah. Uh, as I try to uh, get more clarity, uh, focus on the things the finish, uh, it seems that uh, something more is happening that's coming to my observation. Uh, it seems that the clarity is uh, developed. The clarity is, you're losing clarity? No, uh, the clarity is, uh, is, uh, is getting Oh, it's getting better. Yes, and that's yeah, that's what you should find is as you try harder to perceive the the, the uh, less distinct sensations, then the clarity must become stronger. It's the only way that you could succeed. So that that is the desired result, <clears throat> and also to help you to not get lost in in mind wandering as a result of it. But something else that you can do when the sensations of the breath become less distinct is to uh, to try to be aware of them uh, in, in a less focused way so that you can be aware not just of the sensations at your nose but also the rise and fall of your abdomen or the movement of your chest as well. Have you tried that? Yeah. And did that help? sense of the whole body become uh, more intense. Yes. Yeah. And that's, uh, so that's, that accomplishes the same purpose. And you, that you, you keep yourself from, your mind from drifting into wandering and, uh, and forgetting what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. You're most welcome. Sounds like you're doing very well.
Uh, other questions that might be related to what we were talking about earlier? Or thoughts or observations? Yes? Uh, when I was trying to focus on the, um, like the distinctive levels of in, in the beginning of the breath, of the in-breath and the end of the in-breath, mm-hmm. there were moments where I guess I was able to tell a subtle difference at mm-hmm. the end of the out-breath and then at the break the beginning of the, the health breath. But there are moments where it seems to, like there is some lingering from the mm-hmm. in-breath that goes into the out-breath. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's just less clarity of, of these yeah. distinctions. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll just repeat this in case there's other people that didn't hear. Uh, he was noticing that in observing the beginning uh, and the ending of the breath, that in observing, particularly the, begin- the ending of the out-breath, which is the le- least distinctive of those four points, that sometimes that uh, sometimes it was clear, but other times it seemed to linger and it was much more difficult to uh, identify where the end actually was. That, did I repeat that correctly? And that's completely normal. That's the way it is. Uh, by continuing to determine whether you know, where, where is the point where it's no longer present? Uh, this is just going to help you to remain more fully engaged and to increase the, uh, the, the power of your awareness through making that attempt. But uh, don't impose any particular expectation. What arises in your conscious awareness is what arises in your conscious awareness. And so that's, that's what you're working with. And sometimes it's more distinct, and sometimes you can't quite find it at all, and that's fine. Um, but there are things that you will learn from that process. Like, um, one of the things about any sensation that we have uh, is that as a sensation, it arises and passes away. But when it registers in the mind, it leaves an imprint that fades slowly or sort of reverberates. It's like when you hit a bell and then it continues to ring for some time afterwards. And so each of these, when you're looking at these very, very fine sensations, it's sometimes difficult to tell where did the actual physical sensation end and where is just the memory of that sensation there. And that will create a lingering effect. But that's a wonderful discovery because what you're doing is you're actually having a direct look at the way, the way your mind uh, creates experience out of sensation. Sensation arises and passes away. Your mind saves the recent sequence of sensations until it becomes recognizable. You know, it's like a tune. I play one note. You have no idea what piece, what tune it belongs to. I play two notes, you still can't tell. Three notes, you might start to guess. But if I keep playing more notes in succession, there'll come a point where you recognize the tune, right? And Because the association between them is there. And it's the same way with all of our sensations, that you know the mind saves them until it recognizes them. When it recognizes them, it, it, it puts the identification, the conceptual label on it. It says, oh, that's a, that's a dog barking. That's that's a person sneezing. That's that's the sensation. 
that's the last sensation of the movement of the air through my nose before <laughs> it disappears. So it's the, it's the way things happen, and it's wonderful to be able to see that and be aware of it. So just just observe what's ever there, and don't judge it. Whatever you whatever you observe and whatever you find, that's what's happening in in your reality in this present moment. And continue to observe, and as you do so, it will begin to real, reveal more about itself and about the nature of the experience as it does so. But thank you for that, that comment. Anything else? Anyone else? Okay. <clears throat> um, we're going to sit again in a few moments. Um, I'll just point out to you, uh, I, I said that when your mind has wandered or you've forgotten the meditation object, that that moment when you realize it, that is, that is not only a return to present moment awareness, it's also an experience of introspective awareness. Because you know what your mind is doing, you know what the intentions were, and, and you know that they're out of sync. So. Do you all understand what I mean by that when I say introspective awareness? And this is what you you want more of. This is what you you want as much of this as you can. So I just want to point out it does you don't have to wait for it to arise after you've forgotten your meditation object. While you're still observing your meditation object, you can be in that experience of of knowing that you're still in the present, knowing that your mind has not wandered, knowing the degree to which uh, your uh, awareness either has greater or lesser clarity. Okay, so just at any opportunity uh, that that introspective awareness can be present, encourage that. Just. Hold that as sort of the background intention behind all of this, is that you'd like to come to that place of never really quite losing the mindful awareness of the mind itself and what's what's actually taking place. Okay. Um, so we're going to sit. One other little thing that I'd like you to notice uh, is what are the different types or categories of things that you can be aware of. Does anybody offhand have a sense? Can we, can we take all of the possible things that might be objects of conscious awareness and put them in uh, two or three slots easily? Yes? That what's internal and what's external. Yes, uh, I mean that's that. Internal and external is a really obvious, uh, and the physical senses are what tells us about what's external to the mind and the body, right? Sense of hearing, sense of touch, uh, smell, taste. Got your eyes closed, but if they're open, it'd be vision. Uh, whereas the sixth sense is the mind sense, which is the sense by which you're aware of thoughts and memories and emotions and feelings, things like that, right? So yes, you can divide 
you can take all possible content of conscious awareness and divide it into sensations known by means of the five physical senses and mental objects that are known to the mind sense. And so just add that little bit of knowledge to your experience of the different things that are taking place in your mind as you meditate. Okay? Let's kind of let that that fact, that reality, that awareness soak in. So I would like for us to sit together. I know you've eaten recently. So this will be an experience of meditating uh, at one of the more diff- on, at one of the more difficult uh, occasions when you have a full stomach and in the uh, sometime in the period afternoon. <laughs> and what you what you might discover is the experience of dullness of of rapidly losing the clarity of your perception of it being very easy for other thoughts and maybe dreamlike images to enter in. And you might even find yourself becoming drowsy. But uh, that's just part of the experience. And if that happens, we'll, we're going to talk to you about it afterwards and, and how, how to deal with it. Maybe it won't. We're sitting soon enough after you've eaten that you might not be at your most... At your most uh, drowsy and dull state yet. So just try to um, apply as, uh, as much as you have been able to absorb of what we've talked about. Make yourself comfortable sitting wherever you choose, on the chair or on cushions. Relax your entire body. Close your eyes. Just be aware of everything that's everything that's presenting itself to consciousness. Somebody hammering on something. Uh, people moving around and getting adjusted, the feelings in your body, coolness, warmth, clothing, pressure on your seat, scan your body for tension. Check your posture, make sure you're balanced and even comfortable. Just enjoy being here, being alive, being a conscious person in a body hopefully free from pain or discomfort. And this next little while, when we meditate, this is time that belongs to you alone. 
doesn't belong to anything else in the world or anyone else. This is your time. So just enjoy being here, being alive. Feel the air moving in and out. Be fully present. Now go ahead and allow yourself to become more fully aware of the breathing, abdomen, chest, and nose. And just gradually make the sensations of the breath at the nose become the true center of your awareness while you're allowing everything else to be there as well. Not trying to make anything be there, not trying to make anything go away. Just resting in the state of present awareness. you to do is to just go ahead and at the end of each breath count say one and then two and so forth and see if you can stay with ten breaths in a row where you're really satisfied that uh, you didn't really lose awareness of a significant part of any in-breath or any out-breath but if you do that's all right but start over again with one until you can go for 10 continuous breaths where you're satisfied that you didn't really lose awareness of the breath. And then at that point, stop counting and just continue to meditate as we did earlier.
So, show of hands, how many of you enjoyed that? And how many of you felt like it was a struggle? For those of you that felt like it was a struggle, <clears throat> did you find that there were parts of it that you enjoyed? Mm -hmm. Anybody that didn't? Anybody that didn't find any enjoyment in that at all? Oh, that's good. Um, would anybody care to talk about why they felt it was a struggle? Yes. I felt like I don't know if I am computing this, but I kind of felt as though I was aware of when the digestion was kicking in and the blood sugar was getting in there with my brain. And, and it was it's also more difficult to be aware of when I would be drawn away in thoughts. It felt very like a like a tidal wave would just roll over my sand castle. Mm -hmm. um, and that edge where you you're aware you're being drawn into it was uh, it was harder to find that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, can you look at that and define what it was about that experience that caused you to identify it in a more negative way? So would it be accurate to say that there were certain expectations with that were disappointed? Yeah. Okay, yes. Right. So, uh, so you can see to the degree that uh, you allow yourself to want it to be in a particular way. If you, if you want it to be the way your last meditation was, or the way that you imagine that it, it could be or should be, and it's not that way, then the inevitable result is a feeling of dissatisfaction and disappointment. Okay. Anyone else like to comment on the, the degree which was a struggle? Yes. Did you have pleasant experiences as part of it? Yes. Okay. Well, see, what I would suggest that you always try to do is be completely accepting whatever is happening in this meditation. That's what's happening. It, you can't. Uh, the way I put it is, there's no such thing as a bad meditation. There's only meditations in which you fail to do the simple things that you're supposed to do, which is to redirect your attention, 
uh, hold the intention to sustain your attention and uh, enjoy the fact that you do eventually come back to it even when you lose it. That's your job. And if you don't do your job, it's not a good meditation. But no matter what else happens, if you do that, it's still a great meditation. No matter if... And, and try to try to imprint that on your mind. That as long as as long as the intentional actions that are part of the practice were fulfilled, then everything else happened was as it should be. It was the it's the it's the stuff upon which uh, the practice is working to bring about the, the effects in the mind. And then you aren't, aren't disappointed. You aren't expecting it to be in a in a different way. So try to remember that. And then the other thing is, there is always some pleasantness, some enjoyment in there, some some part of the experience which uh, is satisfying to some degree. You, you learn something from it. Uh, it feels good. Uh, it's uh, it gives you some sense of accomplishment. It's just plain pleasant in and of itself or it's a sense of calmness, and focus on that. So when, when those feelings are there, really, really accept those. And when those other feelings of frustration or disappointment or wanting things to be different come along, just let them be but refuse to, to grab hold of them. Be a little preferential, a little selective there. Can you um, help me with my thoughts on the householder? Um, popular press reads it rather negatively. <laughs> the householder? Uh, is it going to limit? Are, we, are limits imposed on us just because of that? I, I don't think so at all. I think as a householder, uh, you have many more demands on your uh, on your time and your attention, and also as a householder, you find yourself uh, in many situations in which it may be hard to sustain mindful awareness. But those are not necessarily bad things, uh, and you can you can accomplish anything that you uh, anything as a householder that you could potentially accomplish as a hermit in a cave is that kind of idea yeah, yeah. Uh, and as a matter of fact your the accomplishments in terms of your meditation and in terms of your uh, spiritual development as a whole as a householder, they're going to be much more firm and solid, and, and you're going to know that they are, that they, because they're constantly being challenged. You know, the degree to which you experience equanimity in a variety of difficult situations that you're faced with as a householder, you know that equanimity is real and you know that it's strong. If you were a hermit in a cave, and there is one of the traditional stories that says, it's about a monk, I don't remember his name, but he went off, it wasn't a cave, it was a hut in the forest, 
and he meditated there for several years all by himself. And he was convinced that he was completely, uh, you know, imperturbable, and he'd reached a stage of imperturbability, and uh, he was convinced that he was enlightened, and he thought it was time to go back to his monastery, his home monastery, and report into, uh, you know, to his teachers and so forth as to his accomplishment. Well, he never made it back to the monastery uh, on that task because uh, he reached a a, uh, crossroads at which there was a market and a lot of people and a lot of things going on. And a number of events happened that uh, caused him to totally lose his cool and lose his, you know, all of these wonderful... (laughs) The qualities, the equanimity and, and the tranquility and, and the concentration and mindfulness that he thought he had developed while sitting beside, by himself in a hut in the forest just evaporated when confronted with, uh, with the stresses of, of the marketplace, of this crossroads marketplace. And so uh, as a householder, you can certainly develop all of, the, all of these qualities. You need to simplify your life. You can't, uh, you can't, uh, if you devote your life to the common belief system that you need to acquire as much stuff as possible and, you know, uh, and uh, entertain yourself to, to death and everything else like that, then no, you're not, you're not going to succeed in these practices. But uh, if you, if you make uh, spiritual practice and meditation, the primary focus of your life, and if you uh, if you adjust all of the other responsibilities and activities of being a householder around that primary focus, then you will be able to uh, achieve all of the same success. Uh, there were were many uh, arhats in the time of the Buddha who were householders, and so it yeah, it certainly. It certainly can be done, and I had a, a conversation with uh, uh, Geshe. Uh, can't remember his name. Ar- he's at Arkansas now. Oh, Geshe Dorje. Yeah, uh, uh, a Tibetan uh, Lama. He's uh, uh, a Larumpa Geshe. He's the, so in terms of. The, the training in that tradition, he was at, at the peak and had been a monk since uh, he was a small child. And we were having a conversation about exactly this, you know, the pros and cons of practicing Buddhism as a, as a monastic or as a layholder, or, or, or as a householder, layperson. And uh, uh, his opinion uh, corresponded to this. He said that to practice as a householder was more difficult but potentially far more effective. So, but you do have to make the commitment. It has to be. It has to be the uh, priority in your life. And to follow up like that, could you talk a little bit about livelihood then? Well, it corresponds to that. That you know, uh, as as a householder. You are taking responsibility for your own livelihood, uh, but uh, 
this comes back to one of the first things I mentioned is what do you, what is it that you think you need? What do you believe that you really need? And how much of your time and energy are you willing to sacrifice? You have no idea how many years, uh, how, how many moments, uh, how many breaths that you have left in this lifetime. And so uh, you have to, uh, as a householder, you need to evaluate the, uh, the balance between your practice and the time and energy that you're giving up uh, in order to make a living. But there's another part to this, too, that as a householder, in terms of your livelihood, I mean, the assumption here is that you're not going to do anything that is, uh, is unwholesome and wrong livelihood, but beyond that, can you make your living in a kind of activity that itself is a part of your practice, as a part of your sadhana? Can you make your living in a way that allows you to practice mindfulness, to practice loving-kindness and compassion, uh, to that um, contributes to contributes in a positive and wholesome way to being able to to do the more intensive practices like sitting meditation and perhaps the retreats without arriving uh, on the cushion with a mind filled with stresses and conflicts and things like that. So as as a as a committed householder you evaluate your livelihood entirely in terms of its impact on your primary goal, your primary objective, which is your spiritual practice uh, and, and your attainments. And so you choose, you choose that which meets your needs at the least cost to your dharma practice. And even better than that, if possible, that which meets your needs while itself becoming as much as possible a part of your dharma practice. And to make that kind of commitment actually leads to a simpler life. Decisions become much simpler. You have a really clear-cut criteria, highly testable uh, in, in, in daily experience, you know, whether, whether you're going in the right direction or not. And life becomes easier, choices become easier. Okay, let's go back to meditation. I appreciated that question. That's good. Well, that's all right. Every now and then it's good to take a break. Let's go back to the meditation and this meditation experience while we're sitting. Uh, anyone else have anything that they would like to say about it? Yes? So, um, two things that made it a struggle for me is, you know, the drowsiness. That, you know, that did come. Kind of expected, but I was surprised at the speed of it. Yeah. Because there was... It happened several times, like, you know, I do that, like you're almost, like you're following things. Mm -hmm. You know, I would be embarrassed to roll out on the <laughs> <laughs> so, But one time, I was, I know I was on my breathing. And like one second later, I was startling like that. Yeah. I was just very surprised at the speed that it can enter in. Yes, it, yes, that's right, it can. It's, uh... It can happen very quickly, or it can happen more slowly. And uh, even when it happens quickly, you know, it's, it's you're still going through stages. You're just driving, diving straight down instead of a gradual decline. Uh, so I, I knew we would have the opportunity to talk about dealing with drowsiness and dullness 
as a result of sitting right after lunch. (laughs) (laughs) And so we will take that opportunity right now. So last night I pointed out to you that uh, fully conscious mindful awareness represented one end of the spectrum. Uh, The other end is to be asleep, right? And so from wherever you are, if you start moving in that direction, you're moving in the uh, direction of increasing dullness. And uh, as dullness increases, first, it, it, when it happens slowly, not when it happens, when it happens really rapidly, it's hard to detect these different stages that it goes through. But when it happens more slowly, it's quite obvious that the first thing that happens is that there is a uh, gradual loss in the clarity of your perception. And actually at the same time, you know, if you if you have this awareness of your breath and it is more or less at the center of your perception, there's also kind of a shrinking of awareness that happens at the same time. And this is the onset, this is the subtle stage of dullness, but it will become stronger. And as it becomes stronger, if you're still aware of your meditation object, it begins to be distorted. It begins to be something it's not. Uh, You're watching the in and out breath. It becomes something that vaguely resembles the in and out breath, but really isn't, you know, like uh, waves going in and out. Or This is some kind of hypnagogic, dreamlike imagery comes in to replace the, the meditation object. Or the other thing that happens in strong dullness is is you'll lose your grasp on the meditation object entirely and something else comes in and and replaces it, uh, which is also held in a state of dullness. But a distraction comes in and you're overtaken by a, a distraction. And as that dullness becomes stronger, you slip into drowsiness. And... Uh, you know what that feels like. Probably most of you had an opportunity to experience a little bit of that in this last sit. Is that not correct? You know, okay. The drowsiness, the, the drowsiness will actually cause you to fall asleep. And when you fall asleep, the muscles that hold your body erect will suddenly relax and you go like this. <laughs> Rarely do you roll out on the floor, but it could happen. <laughs> Okay, so dealing, dealing with this dullness and drowsiness, first of all, like everything else, it's a completely natural response of your mind. All of your life, when you have turned your attention inward, you've, saw, you've started ignoring external stimuli, you've become quiet, you've ceased to move, uh, uh, what has generally happened is that you've gone to sleep. And uh, you've done that intentionally, every night for your entire life probably, or very nearly so. So you're creating a set of conditions that very much resemble uh, what, you, uh, what you do when you intentionally go to sleep at night. So it's to be expected that the mind is probably going to tend to react in somewhat the same way. So it is a natural thing. If your stomach is full, then a lot of your blood flow goes to your intestines. 
and at the same time some of the hormones that are released by the wall of the stomach and the walls of the intestines are uh, chemically similar to neurotransmitters in the brain that are associated with, uh, with sleep and relaxation. And they're carried by the blood to the brain and have that same effect. So that's why we all tend to feel a little dull and sluggish after we eat. And of course, the, we have a daily cycle of our energy level, our mental and physical energy level goes up and down. And for most people, it starts at afternoon, it begins descending towards a low point. And it reaches a very low point sometime in the middle of the afternoon and then starts to go up. So when you, when you put all of these things together, it's no wonder that you're experiencing some drowsiness at this time of day. You're digesting a meal. It's a low time in the, in the daily cycle of, of your body energy. You're turning your attention inward. You're basically not responding to external stimulation anymore. And your mind's a little bit predisposed to going to sleep anyway when that happens. So it is completely normal. It's no fault. No fault of the meditation, no fault of you. When it happens other times during the day and when you haven't eaten a meal, then two of those factors may not be present, but the third one is. You're still replicating the conditions that strongly, that strongly resemble what happens when you deliberately go to sleep. So what we need to do is to train the mind that when we're meditating, it's not exactly the same. So we can train the mind that when we're meditating, the mind doesn't respond in the same way. And so that's what we'll do. So look forward to it every time you experience dullness and drowsiness. It's an opportunity to train the mind. And after doing a certain amount of this, you will reach a point where you almost never experience dullness and drowsiness. So that's what you can look forward to. Um, this is one of the more difficult parts of the training for the simple reason that dullness is pleasant and seductive and drawing yourself out of it is almost painful. So in most of the rest of the practice, the only thing that makes it difficult is that we have expectations that we apply and, and then we we turn it into uh, a struggle in a situation of success or failure. But dealing with dullness is the one part of the entire practice where there is uh, inherently in it, because of the fact that you are denying the mind this seductive pleasure of sinking into dullness and sleep, and there is a certain discomfort associated with arousing yourself, that it, it, it is more genuinely unpleasant, but you do have to get through it. Everybody does. And so from now on, look forward to dullness and drowsiness as your opportunity to train the mind to get past this problem once and for all. Now, how you do that? Okay. You need to, what's happened is the energy level of the mind has fallen. You need to bring it back up. And so you need to apply some sort of antidote to the drowsiness that is appropriate in intensity to rouse you back up, at least for a little while. 
the factors that cause the dullness in the first place are still present. So it's not the case that you rouse yourself once and necessarily that's it. You stay alert after that. But you have applied a strong enough antidote if you can bring yourself back to a state of alertness and stay that way for at least a few minutes before you experience sinking back into dullness. And so if, if you don't have that experience, if you, if you bring yourself out of it and then you find yourself immediately sinking again, the antidote wasn't strong enough. You need to do something a little stronger. So it's a question of recognizing the dullness when it's there and then applying an antidote that is sufficiently intense to raise the energy level of the mind up again. Now, let's, let's begin with uh, the kind of drowsiness that uh, is, is, is not, or the kind of dullness that is not the most subtle and responds to the mildest antidotes. Let's, let's look to begin with at uh, dullness, at strong dullness, that is moving towards drowsiness and that uh, you'll need to use a fairly strong antidote for. Because this is, in the beginning, this is when you're going to become aware of the dullness, is when it's already quite strong. As time goes by, you know, as you have a little more experience with dullness, you'll start to detect it at its more subtler stages. But we'll start out right now addressing how you're going to become aware of it to begin with. You're going to become aware of it when you've already lost clarity in your perception, where there's already perhaps some strong tendency to lose the meditation object or to have some hypnagogic imagery arise, and where you may already feel your body starting to slump down. So at that level, what you need is something that's fairly, fairly potent, and uh, you can invent your own things, but these are the things that I have used, that I was taught, and that I use, and they work pretty well for most people. Okay, one is that you tense up all the muscles in your body. You're sitting there, and you just clench up all your muscles and hold it, and then let go, and do that several times. And it's almost like you're pumping this energy up your spine to to your brain, and it leaves you awake and alert for for at least for a few minutes. And another one that's very similar to that is where you take a really deep breath and let it out slowly against resistance, and it's the same kind of feeling. You feel a kind of surge of, of energy going up into your brain. So try that. And you'd have to do that very quietly if you're sitting in a room with other people. But, but do you get... If you try that, do you have that feeling? That will wake you up a little bit. So, you were like blowing it out there. I, I was making it deliberately audible so that I was pushing it out against pursed lips. Okay. Okay. So exhaling against some resistance. I was making it audible just so that you'd know what so I was doing. So resistance is different than just slowly. Uh, yes. You know, you're inflating your lungs and. Uh, So it, uh, you know, it, it just it, it produces a lot of stimulation in the body, and then once you've done that, 
you make sure your body, you bring yourself to a fully erect position. You're now nice and alert. Uh, you, you, you just you be be aware of your body, and then, and then, come back to having the breath at the center of your awareness, and enjoy that alert, wakeful state, and practice until it comes back. And so, if that if that gives you a few a few minutes, two, three, five minutes of uh, alert wakefulness, then that's that's appropriate. That's good. Is it a general length of time your body is done with digestion, and you don't have to worry about? It? I mean, it wouldn't take the whole afternoon. You no, it usually takes about two hours. Uh, and actually, if you're a person that needs to meditate later in the day, you might adjust the period of time when you eat to to uh, take the best advantage. What happens with most of us is we eat sometimes between between 12 and 1 o'clock. That effect lasts for about two hours. And then our basal metabolic rate hits its low point of the afternoon between 2 and 4. So the way we usually lead our lives is we experience a couple of hours of postprandial, after eating uh, dullness. And that passes away just in time for our diurnal cycle to give us more dullness to last another hour or two. <laughs> so, uh, but about two hours is uh, typically about how long it takes for the stomach to empty, food to move past the first part of the small intestine where those hormones are being released, and, and it's not such a problem. Uh, okay, so this is an example of recognizing the presence of dullness in this case, it's already fairly strong. Applying an antidote, and if it's strong enough, you've energized the mind enough to have a few minutes of practice. Uh, and and the, the whole point is you want to energize the mind back to sort of the, uh, the base level of alertness. And dullness may come again, but at least you're coming from your base level. You're not still in a state of partial dullness. You want to get all the way back. Okay. And the idea isn't that you do this once or twice and you're done with it. <coughs> um, it will go away when it's ready to. You might do this a number of times. You might be meditating, you might de deal with dullness for 20 minutes, and then all of a sudden you're wide awake and you stay wide awake. And that's good. Uh, over time, that's exactly how training away dullness is going to manifest, is that you, you find more and more often, more and more quickly, you've applied the antidote a number of times and then, wow, you're right there and that's it. For the rest of that sit, you're not going to have a problem. It just happens more easily. Okay. There's another part to this. It's, uh, uh, well, first of all, before I go on, the, the other part of it is recognizing dullness as early as possible because you're going to be most effective if you recognize it as soon as possible. I'm going to come back to that. First, I want to introduce you to the strongest antidotes of all. Because sometimes doing what I just described isn't going to be enough. And you wake up, but you just immediately you're sinking again. So when that's the case, stand up. Meditate standing up for a few minutes. And that will probably do it. Meditating, standing up, it's a completely legitimate posture in which to meditate. 
But it is also the most uncomfortable of all postures to meditate. You know? <laughs> Standing still. Uh, but if you stand upright and, and meditate, uh, that should wake you up sufficiently that uh, after a certain period you could sit down and you may have to repeat it or you may have to repeat one of the other milder antidotes to the, to, to the uh, dullness. If standing and meditating isn't enough, you can switch from uh, you can switch to walking meditation. And in the most extreme case, if you're still even with walking meditation, you're finding that there's a lot of you, you just feel this weight of sinking and uh, uh, this desire to just go and have a nap. Well. Go into the washroom, splash some cold water on your face, do something like that, <laughs> and then then go back and sit. It's completely legitimate. It's not it's not interrupting your practice. It's actually doing your practice properly. That when dullness is present during your meditation period, then you do what's necessary to re-energize the mind. And if that's what you're doing, then you're carrying out the practice properly. You haven't interrupted your practice. You haven't lost time from your practice due to dullness or due to going to the washroom and splashing your face. It's all been part of practice. Okay, let's talk about recognizing dullness uh, earlier and uh, and applying the milder antidote. <coughs> the earlier, the the more subtle the dullness that is present, the easier it is to counteract. And so there's a certain skill in recognizing subtle dullness. The very first signs of dullness are the loss of clarity, uh, the loss of vividness in your awareness of whatever it is that you're aware of. Uh, if you are if you're meditating on the sensations of the breath, you'll see that there, there isn't a sharp beginning or ending uh, that you can easily identify in the end and in, in the in and out breath that it begins to be kind of blurry. And you'll find that there's also a very tempting sense of, of ease in this, that you, you, you just want to kind of let go and relax into this, this hypnotic flow. If you do, you're just going to keep going down. So this is the earliest, one of the earliest signs you're going to notice. And the other is, if you become aware that your overall awareness is shrinking, and it's easy to mistake this for having greater attentional stability. Like, oh wow, you know, I'm getting, I'm, I, I'm getting really good at staying with my meditation object. But there is, is sort of a funneling in and a closing down of your overall awareness that can be deceptive in that way. Uh, it takes skill to tell if that's what's happening, and skill and experience to tell if that's what's happening, or if Indeed, you are just, your mind is becoming very, very stable and rests easily on the meditation object. But the really key thing is the loss of clarity. Another thing that will be a clue to this subtle dullness is you're sitting there meditating and you think you're alert and awake, but somebody coughs or a door slams or a horn honks outside and you suddenly jerk. That is usually a dead giveaway that you were in a state of dullness if you experience that kind of startle response. So that's another way of being aware of 
subtle dullness. It, and, and it will progress from the subtle dullness to a stronger dullness. It's only through observing it and through experience that you really get good at recognizing it. You do have an opportunity to do this, though, every night when you go to sleep. Meditate as you go to sleep at night, and you'll become very familiar with the qualitative changes that take place in your awareness as you slip into dullness towards sleep. And it will carry over into your meditation practice. It will, you'll, just, you'll just know it for what it is right away. Uh, the mild antidotes to subtle dullness uh, probably the mildest antidote of all is to, uh, you, you see, normally your mind remains energized by the constant input of external stimuli. So the mildest antidote is just to, to restore that for a period of time, which you can uh, very deliberately become aware of your body, bodily sensations, external sounds, let your mind generate the picture of the environment, the room you're sitting in, uh, the, uh, the building the room is in, the city the building is in, the planet the city is on, you know. You just go ahead and let all the normal kind of stimulus, stay in the present moment, stay in the here and now, but just let your awareness go back to that, that place that usually keeps you awake all day. Uh, uh, being, uh, being fully aware of bodily sensations, sounds, uh, the mental formations that turn those sensations and sounds into meaningful reality for you. And that should, a few minutes of that or, or even a few seconds of that should re-energize your mind. And then you can go back to, to your practice. Another thing, very closely related to it, very similar, is just simply opening your eyes. One of the strongest sources of stimulation to our brains uh, is, is our visual sense, is our eyes. And so opening your eyes, uh, you can open your eyes and look around the room and that might wake you up. But you can, uh, it's usually a good idea to continue meditating with your eyes open and that will help to, uh, to keep you from sinking into this subtle dullness. Rather than go on about this, if you have the idea and, and if you have any questions, you can invent your own ways. But as long as you recognize that what you're trying to do is to re-stimulate your nervous system, your brain, to bring up the energy level of your mind so that you're back to the same level of alert wakefulness that you were before the dullness came on. And uh, this, the effect of doing this repeatedly is to train your mind to remain alert and awake rather than slipping into dominance. Any questions about it? Yes? It, it sounds very physical. It is very physical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is, because uh, all of these things I described are providing sensory stimulus which is, uh, which is activating neural circuits in your brain. You know, even when I said you straighten up your spine like this, you know, that, uh, that, the, the muscles that maintain an erect posture uh, are neurologically directly connected to the part of the brainstem that activates the cortex. 
And so, uh, in every sense, even the most subtle of these things that I'm talking about doing is using your sensory nervous system to uh, stimulate your brain, bring you to state of wakefulness. Good observation. Well, I don't know if age, but I'm starting to notice when I start to drop off, my lips come down, my mouth drops. Mm-hmm. Things like that are, you know, they're helpful. They're helpful signs. Uh, they're part of the way of recognizing when dullness comes on. Uh, now, uh, I, I've mentioned it a few times, maybe didn't stress it enough, but when you're meditating, it's good every now and then to check into your, your body. Uh, check into your body to see if tension is anywhere and, and if it's there to, to just let go of it and relax it. But the other thing is when you check into your body in that way periodically, you might find that you're starting to go into a a strong slumping posture or that your jaw is starting to fall or or something like that. And and those are cues that you can make use of. So, So do that checking in regularly.